If you have your Bibles, open please to Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Our text today is found in verse number 13. Ecclesiastes 12.13 Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Last Sunday we considered the matter of fear in a meditation on the most repeated commandment in scripture. Did you know that? The most repeated command in scripture is, do not be afraid or do not fear. And what I did last week was to present a series of questions that could fuel our thinking, our meditation on the matter of fear. And I want to review briefly as they will lead into the subject for our meditation today. The first question we asked last week was, what is fear? Is it an emotion? A common view is that it is an emotion induced by a perceived threat that causes entities to quickly pull away from it and usually hide. It is a basic survival mechanism. So it's an emotion, it's a feeling. And the question comes up, well, if it's, if it's an emotion, how can I be expected to control it? How is it that God commands us over and over and over again not to be afraid? By the way, the same objection is, is given to the command to love. If love is a feeling, how can I force myself to love someone? So the question is, is it an emotion? Second, is it a matter of the mind? As I mentioned last week, this is something that we find in literature uh, time and time again. I'll only mention one, and it's from The Life of Pi uh, by Jan Martel. The main character uh, toward the end does an aside on fear. I must say a word about fear. It is life's only true opponent. Only fear can defeat life. It begins in your mind always. So some see it as a mental issue. But is it a moral issue? I would like to suggest that in fact it is a moral issue because it shapes the kind of people that we are or that we become. The kind of people we become has a lot to do with how we respond to the world around us, how we view it. It really shapes who we are. We live in a culture of fear. Fear has become sort of the ambiance, the, the, the soundtrack to the background of our lives. We are told that fear provide, uh, prompts one of two reactions fight or flight. That is, either we attack that which is threatening us, hoping to overcome it, or we withdraw, running away and fleeing from danger. But in both cases, safety becomes the overwhelming, the all-consuming goal. Why would I fight? For safety. Why would I flee? For safety. So the question is, is fear an emotion? Is it a, a mental state? Is it a moral issue? To which we would say yes, yes, yes. The second question we asked last week is, what are the roots of fear? And we considered three such roots, and I won't redo the sermon, but first of all, the biblical roots. The appearance of fear in the world is found in the story of the rebellion of Adam and Eve. They were put in the Garden of Eden 
so that they might learn to trust God. They might learn to obey Him. They are confronted with a test, an exam, if you wish. And what we find is, as it is today, we find human creatures unwilling to be creatures. Human beings seeking to declare themselves as self-created. And the change from what the serpent said to what God has said might simply seem to be a matter of wording, of linguistic changes, but it's really profound. God made them in his image, but the serpent said, you will be like God. The difference is really quite vast. To either reflect the goodness and the beauty of God, or to turn our gaze inward to claim that we have goodness and beauty on our own. Human beings began to assert themselves as the source of light. The result is we become unending self-creators. We see ourselves as those who create ourselves. We are gods to ourselves. What we fail to realize is that when the first human beings sought to be self-creators, that's when they learned fear. That's when fear became a part of their makeup. The dynamics had changed. They were no longer content to rest in God's goodness and in the beauty of God. They, in fact, decided that they would be the masters of their lives. And fear was the result. It is like a child, uh, a toddler who wants to be independent from his or her parents. um, And they wander off, let's say, in the mall or in a grocery store. They seem quite content. And then they turn around and mom or dad aren't there. And then they begin to fear because they have gone beyond the boundaries of where they are supposed to be. We fear failing because we will always fail. As self-creators, we are, we are not self-created. And when we imagine that we are, we will fail. We fear death because we do not receive life as a gift from God. We see life as something we have on our own. And we fear God's presence because it reminds us that we are not God. It is a part of our makeup since Adam and Eve sinned, and therefore we find the repeated command, do not be afraid. Briefly, the political roots. Since the 17th century, uh, the politics of the modern world, the Western world, have really changed. And it used to be, yes, certainly before the modern world, that fear was a tool used by the emperor, the king, um, the church. But now fear has changed. It used to be you were afraid of the tyrant, of the man in charge, what he might do. But once the world changed in the 17th century, the fear is not of tyranny. The fear is of anarchy. We're afraid of chaos. And so the thing that holds people together, that holds nations together, is fear. Uh, Benedict Anderson, a Southeast Asian historian, has written a famous book called The Imagined Communities. He's like, what makes us nations? And it's like we have this imagined connection to one another. I don't disagree, but I would say the connection that we have is fear. It is fear. As a people, we are never more unified or we never feel more unified than when there is a common enemy, someone to fear. And it is not content to rest in politics or stay there. We find it in the culture. 
usually in a community, in a nation, people have a shared story. There's something that binds them together. This is our tradition. This is our history. Um, But in this country, for the most part, we really don't have a shared story. And so the shared story that we have is fear. The things that we are afraid of. The third question I asked last week is, if that's the case, then maybe fearlessness should be the answer. Is fearlessness the answer? As I mentioned, Thomas Aquinas argued that we can become fearless in one of three ways, and all of them are wrong. Either we can not love, and if you don't love, then you don't fear losing the one that you love. Secondly, through dullness of understanding. That is, you don't really know that you should be afraid of something. And so you're fearless, or seemingly so. In reality, you're just blind to what's going on around you. And the third is the pride of soul. That is, you believe that you are invulnerable. You are not susceptible to loss. A man who's written a book on Christians and fear, Scott Bader Say, puts it this way. In contemporary terms, it is the security of detachment, sort of the Eastern way, detach, and therefore you will not fear. The bliss of ignorance and the pursuit of invulnerability. As I said last week, I would suggest to you that fearlessness is not a virtue. It is, in fact, a vice. It is not the answer to the question of fear. And this is where the question or the matter of the fear of the Lord comes into play. This is what one writer put how she put it. From a biblical perspective, there is nothing neurotic about fearing God. The neurotic thing is to not be afraid or to be afraid of the wrong thing. That is why God chooses to be known to us so that we may stop being afraid of the wrong thing. When God is fully revealed to us and we get it, then we experience the conversion of our fear. Because in fact, we are to fear. We are to fear God. But if we don't fear God, then we will fear other things. That is, God wants us to turn our fear away from worldly objects that only manipulate, seek to control, or coerce us. We are to to redirect our fear to God, whose power does not threaten our true good, but it in fact sustains it. As Ellen Davis put it, The fear of the Lord is deeply sane recognition that we are not God. In the hymn, Amazing Grace, we sing, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved." This seems paradoxical, that grace teaches me to fear, but at the same time it gets rid of my fear. What we hear is that we need to be taught to fear the right way, the right things. We need to be taught how to fear well. If we are excessively fearful, or if our fears are in fact disordered, um, this can lead into other things, such as cowardice, violence, and even rage. And we will not do the things that we should do, such as showing hospitality, being generous to those in need, and being peacemakers. What I would like us to do in our time together today is to do a meditation on the fear of the Lord.
We are told again and again, do not be afraid, do not fear. And yet we are told, as in our text, that we are to fear God. This seems like a contradiction. Isn't it a contradiction? To answer this, to give us some matters for meditation, I will suggest several questions. The first question and the last question will be as it was last week, but we will take it from a different angle. The first question is, what is fear? When you look at the language of scripture, we find that there are two words that are used in Hebrew in the Old Testament and one word in Greek in the New Testament. But we are not linguistic scholars here. Let's see how these words are used in scripture. Generally, there are two ways in which fear is used. The first is described as it's experiencing terror or dread. The terror that is based on the recognition of potential harm. Instructions were given to the Israelites before they went into the promised land. They were going to fight the Ammonites. Set out now and cross the Arnon Gorge. See, I have given into your hand Sihon the Amorite king, king of Heshbon, and his country begin to take possession of it and engage him in battle. This very day I will begin to put the terror and fear of you on all the nations under heaven. They will hear reports of you and will tremble and be in anguish because of you. So it is, I think in the way we normally think of, that is terror or dread. The second way is that it is used to speak of veneration and honor, the fear of respect or awe. I find this interesting in Leviticus chapter 19, In the NIV, verse number three, it has, Each of you must respect his mother and father, and you must observe my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. In the ESV, it has, Each of you, each one of you, or every one of you, shall revere his mother and his father. It is in the King James that I think we have a clearer translation. You shall fear every man his mother and his father. I think the word fear there scares us. Who wants to be afraid of their parents? Are we supposed to tremble? Are we supposed to be filled with dread or terror, the presence of our parents? Uh, And I would say, no, this is not what God commands. The fear that God commands is that of reverence, of respect. God is saying that we are to recognize not that they are older and wiser and more experienced. They may be or they may not be. But they are God's representatives to administer his rule and will to them. Because of the dignity of the position of fathers and mothers, children are to regard their parents with veneration, with honor, and with awe. This is not dread. This is not terror. So when we are told to fear God, which of the two meanings should we look to? I would say both. I would say both. There is a legitimate sense in which the fear of the Lord involves being afraid of God, being gripped with terror and dread. But this is not the dominant thought that we find in Scripture. It is there, but it is not the dominant thought. By the way, we received uh, the letter, a monthly letter from Swiss Labrie uh, this week. And... The closing of the letter, 
you know, we would say sincerely or in Christ, it said, gripped by God. What a way to put it. That God, in fact, holds our lives in his hand. But again, I, I think that terror or the sense of fear is not what is intended, or it's not the dominant theme. Instead, it is that of veneration, of awe, of respect, of reverence. It is fear that causes us not to run away from him, but to run toward him in the person of Jesus Christ. The dominant theme in scripture regarding the fear of the Lord is with respect to his children, those who are believers. And this is what we hear time and time again in the Old Testament. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Those who are God's people recognize that he is the one who is in control. And he alone is the one who is to be feared in that regard. But this isn't simply an old covenant matter. It's like, Damon, that's so Old Testament. One of the promises made in Jeremiah regarding the new covenant. Listen, I will give them singleness of heart and action so that they will always fear me for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make an everlasting covenant with them. I will never stop doing good to them and I will inspire them to fear me so that they will never turn away from me. In Exodus 3, we have the famous, the familiar story of Moses and the burning bush. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire within a bush. Moses saw that the bush was on fire. It did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. What we see here might be mistaken for dread, for terror, but I would argue that in fact it is reverence. It causes Moses to hide his face, lest he look at God. Did not wish to dishonor God, to show a lack of reverence. But this isn't simply an Old Testament thing. In Luke chapter 5, we read of Jesus calling his disciples. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. And Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on you will catch men. So they pulled up their boats on shore, left everything, and followed him. Here Peter tells Jesus to leave him because he is a sinful man. 
But instead, he leaves everything and he follows Jesus. And, and how does this happen? Why does this happen? He comes to see who Jesus is. And he falls at his feet in veneration and fear. It is a fear that leads him to follow Jesus, not to run away from him. Normally fear makes you flee, but it causes him to follow Jesus. As is the case with Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6, Peter becomes deeply aware of his sinful condition. He is a sinful man. But this doesn't lead him to self-flagellate and say, I'm a terrible person, go away, go away. Instead, it leads him to follow Jesus and to become his disciple. We shouldn't think that to follow the Lord requires some comfort on our part. That is, that we are just very much at home with him. There is to be reverence. There is to be an awareness of how frail we are, how sinful we are. And so we worship him, we submit to him, and we obey him. That's the first question. The second question is, what makes up fear? What are the ingredients of fear? I think there are at least three ingredients when it comes to the fear of the Lord. But interestingly enough, I think we find these in all kinds of fear. The first is that we are to love him supremely. The greatest commandment in the law, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. We should be aware that we cannot obey this commandment fully. That somehow we can love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Apart from the grace of God, we cannot love God, we cannot begin to love God as we should. But because we are the children of God and we know that we should walk in the fear of the Lord, we become aware that our duty is to love him because he first loved us. So we are to love him supremely. Secondly, we are to obey him absolutely. Jesus told his disciples the night before his death, you are my friends if you do what I command. After the resurrection, after the day of Pentecost, the apostles are arrested and are brought to the Sanhedrin. They are told we gave you strict uh, instructions or orders not to teach in this name, high priest said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, We must obey God rather than men. That is to say, those who walked in the fear of the Lord, those who feared God, realized that obedience belongs to Him. Any other obedience is secondary to that. The third ingredient to the fear of the Lord is trust. Without faith it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists, that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. But oftentimes this runs contrary to our circumstances as we perceive them. In Hebrews 11, we have a a collection of stories. We are told of God's people in the Old Testament who trusted God in the face of opposition. They trusted God when everything said that they should not. And how did they do this? How is it that the Old Testament people trusted God? Because they feared God. They reverenced him in reverence and in awe. 
They trusted that the Lord God Almighty would do as he had said. By the way, we see this in the Lord Jesus, something I think we don't normally think about. He who is marked by the fear of the Lord. We're like, well, that, that doesn't seem possible. But in Isaiah chapter 11, the prophecy is made, the spirit of the Lord will rest on him. That is the Messiah. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and power, the spirit of knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. That is to say, Jesus would trust his Father completely. He would obey him completely. And he would love him completely. It has been said that the words that Jesus said before his death was perhaps the greatest act of faith, of trust, when he said, into your hands I commit my spirit. The third question for us to consider, why does God want us to fear him? We hear numerous times in Proverbs and even in the Psalms, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Psalm 111, verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All who follow his precepts have good understanding. There's actually been a quote that I've been, it's been rolling around my head for more than a week now, that has sort of led me to this meditation. It's from G.K. Chesterton, the early part of the 20th century. We're not quite sure which particular version. If you look, if you Google it, you'll find different versions. I want to rework what he said. He said, a man who won't believe in God will believe in anything. Or another version is, when a man stops believing in God, he doesn't then believe in nothing. He believes anything. I want to rework this and say, a man who will not fear God will fear anything. Or when a man stops fearing God, he does not become fearless. He comes to fear anything. Because they no longer see God as the king of the universe, everything else becomes more powerful in their eyes. One's perception of reality is skewed. We don't see things as we should. God is the one who is to be feared. In Revelation 15, we have a scene in heaven in which the victorious saints who have overcome the beast and his image, they're in the presence of God and they sing the song of Moses. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. As they behold God, they praise him, because they see him for who he is. And they ask rhetorically, who will not fear you? Anyone who is in their right mind, anyone who is in the presence of God, would show reverence. What is implied is, if you are to fear God, I think you are to have a right view of God. That God is holy, God is mighty, God is merciful. So we are to love him, we are to obey him, and we are to trust him. But what if someone does not fear God? 
I would argue that in fact they fear something or someone else. And to that person or that thing that they fear, they give love, obedience, and trust. These are the ingredients for the fear of the Lord. But if you don't fear God, you're going to fear something else and you will love something else. You will obey something else. You will trust something else. You might say, Damon, that just that doesn't make sense. But the reality is, if something grips your heart with fear, it is the thing that controls your perception of reality. You become obedient to the thing that you fear. It dictates your actions. And in a weird way, you begin to put your faith or your trust in that thing, that that thing, in fact, could do you harm. The fourth and final question, and this is a question that we asked last week. Where should we look for guidance in the fear of the Lord? And here I would suggest the same three things we saw last week. The first is community. We live in a culture of fear. There's also, we live in a culture of disconnection. It's one of the great paradoxes of American society that we prize individuality and yet we long for community. We want to be individuals, but we want to belong. It's kind of hard for us to belong, though, because for the most part, we don't share a moral vision. We don't have the same story. But in the church, in God's, among God's people, in the community of faith, we do have the same story. We do worship the same God. And so it is in the community of faith, in the church, that we can learn, we can begin to learn to fear the Lord as we should. Part of that, what helps us here is something we call tradition, or as another person has put it, the community of the dead. See, we're not the first church, we're not the first Christians. Many have come before us, and we are part of that continuum. And so when it comes to how is it that I should fear the Lord? How is it that I should worship him and respect him and reverence him? We have a whole tradition behind us and we should look to them. We shouldn't say, well, I can do this on my own. I know how to do this. It's supremely individualistic. But in fact, we should in fact belong to a community of the dead, but then also of the living. Those who are God's people here and now. As I said last week, oftentimes our fears have to do with financial matters, a job, a place to live, maybe health. And the church is to be there. We are to help one another so that a brother or sister need not fear for these things, that we can, in fact, help each other. But when it comes to the fear of the Lord, we need to remind each other, by the way, we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. We are to obey him in everything, and we are to trust him. The second thing, and we saw this last week, is providence. In the Bible, we have countless stories of God's provision, how he provides. There are amazing stories. In fact, what the children are learning right now is of Jesus feeding the 5,000. And yet, for some reason, we have lost a sense of this. Part of it is because we are modern people, scientific people, and 
we want rational explanations, uh, even for the miracle of the feeding 5,000. That just doesn't seem possible. Um, so when it comes to providence of God providing for us, that seems to be the last thing we turn to. First, we try to figure things out ourselves, and then we maybe go to family, and then to friends, and then maybe to the church. And then finally, when all else fails, then we look to God to provide for us. Um, and we've lost a true sense that God has been with us every step of the way. Why don't we believe in God's providence? I think because we don't fear God. We don't reverence him. We don't love, we don't obey, we don't trust. The third thing where we should look for guidance on how to fear the Lord our God is vulnerability. See, God's providence does not mean that everything will be the way we want it to be. That we will be secure or safe in the conventional sense. Though living in a culture of fear, oftentimes that's what our prayers are sort of geared toward, and that's what our expectations are. If we think that safety and security are the highest goods, the highest goals, um, they can in fact become idols for us, and God simply becomes a mechanism Lord, this is what I want. And we use him, uh, in the words of Bob Dylan, an errand boy to satisfy our wandering desires. This, I want safety, I want security. Can you make that possible? And if that doesn't work, if God doesn't provide for us, then the politicians will. At least they promise us that they will. But all of these are based on conventional notions of strength and power. This is not biblical. You should go back to what Paul wrote to the Corinthians. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. That's in 1 Corinthians 1. In 2 Corinthians 12, For when I am weak, then I am strong. What we find in scripture is the paradoxical reversal of strength and weakness. Something I think we are very uncomfortable with. Consider the story of Joseph in the book of Genesis. When Joseph's brothers, because they hated him and were jealous of him, sold him into slavery, God did not block their actions. He allowed him to be sold into slavery. When Joseph was sold to Potiphar, God did not block that action. When Potiphar's wife falsely accused him of wrongdoing, for which Joseph was in prison, God did not block that action. When the butler forgot that Joseph had correctly interpreted his dreams, God did not remind him. By the way, remember the promise you made? No. It was only later, when Pharaoh had his dreams. When Pharaoh had dreams and he needed them interpreted. But we should not imagine that God simply is sitting on the throne with his arms folded and not doing anything. That he is somehow allowing our actions to be the actions that dictate reality. No. Joseph was sold into slavery, but he did not die a slave. Instead, he ended up in the house of Potiphar, where God prospered him. He was put in charge of the household. Joseph was imprisoned, but God showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. Joseph was put in charge of the prison under the warden. 
Joseph was in prison, but he did not die in prison. He was made second in Egypt. And Joseph enacted plans to help Egypt survive the coming famine. This enabled him to save his father and his brothers. Joseph saw it this way. His brothers did not. They, in fact, were afraid that after Jacob died, he would get his revenge. And Joseph explained to them, You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. God acted in and through the actions of Joseph's brothers. He did not block them, but neither did he simply accept them, leaving Joseph to die as a slave. There must be in our awareness a sense of vulnerability. One day we are all going to die. That's simply the reality of it. But God has prepared the way for us. And there are times in which we would think he should inject himself into the situation. He doesn't seem to. We would want him to do something and he doesn't. But being a child of God means, yes, we belong to a community. God provides for us. But we are to acknowledge our vulnerability our fragility, our weakness. And if we doubt this, then we should look to the person of Jesus as we see him in his suffering, as we see him on the cross. We see the vulnerability of his love for his people. He who delighted in the fear of God. In closing, we should consider what or who we fear. I want to close with what I read last week from the Sermon on the Mount. This, I think, is a wonderful directive for how we should live our lives. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store, store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If this is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry. I would say do not be afraid. Saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. 
We are not to worry, we are not to fear, but we are to reverence God. He who holds us in his grip, he who provides for us, who watches over us, and one day will bring us home to be with him. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are thankful for your word, for our instructions that we are to fear you. This is the way it is to be. You are the Lord God Almighty. You created us, you sustain us. You alone are worthy of worship. All things are secondary to you. But often we do not fear you, we do not reverence you. Other things take your place in our lives. They cause us to worry, to be filled with fear. Because if we do not fear you, then we will fear something else. I thank you that you've given us brothers and sisters, a community, a church, a congregation, where we can share our fears and where we can be reminded that we are to love you, we are to obey you, we are to trust you. And perhaps above all, to be reminded that we are human beings. We are fragile, we are vulnerable. And that's okay. In a society that seeks safety and security above all, may we not be enticed by these false gods. But may we look to you our Father who loves us so deeply. So much so that one day you will take us home to be with you. May the things that have been said today be fuel for meditation and in the days to come may we think on them and put them into practice. Thank you for bringing us together today. Each one is here because you brought us here. We are grateful for that. And as we leave this place, each one of us, may your spirit and your grace go with us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.